Well, hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Fathoms and Enneagram podcast. And today we are so excited and so grateful to finally, <laughs> we've had a we've <laughs> had a journey getting this scheduled on everyone, both her um, her end and our end. But uh, we're finally excited to have KJ Ramsey on the hey, podcast with it's us. Great Hi, to KJ. See all of you. Hey, great to be with you. Looking forward to the conversation, but I just wanted to introduce our listeners to KJ. I'm sure many of them know you, but in case they don't, so KJ Ramsey is a therapist and an author and uh, Enneagram fluent as well. So (laughs) we can talk about that. Um, Well-versed in the Enneagram. Maybe despite what others may say. Um, (laughs) <laughs> KJ is um, the audience is going to be like what? A, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, KJ is the author of a number of excellent books. Uh, her first book, "This Too Shall Last: Finding Grace When Suffering Lingers," and then she um, more recently came out with her second and third books. The second book is "The Lord Is My Courage: Stepping Through the Shadows of Fear Toward the Voice of Love." And then her third book is The Book of Common Courage, Prayers and Poems to Find Strength in Small Moments. So, which, yes, and you can't see this, but, you know, we're showing them off our own copies here. And so we're really excited to have you on, KJ. Thanks for being here. It's so good to be with you. Uh, KJ, what did you have for breakfast this morning? This is sad, but I had a piece of cheddar cheese. (laughs) <laughs> and and I am on no, my fourth cup of coffee. <laughs> Please tell me you've had something else other than a piece no, of cheese. No, that's that's all nope, I've had. No, nope. that's all I've had. Great. He's going to two for a second and mothering you. It's <laughs> uh, no. right. It's all right. I had I had treat okay I had treatment last night I had to take some treatment and it makes me a little bit nauseated so this morning I was a little nauseated mm. so I kept my meal small in all that fairness sense. That makes sense. <laughs> I'll accept thank, it thank you um, <laughs> yes so you're from Michigan yes I am yeah yes me this too. isn't gonna I'm help in Michigan oh you're in Michigan okay moment. so where where I'm are you Mich- I'm in the Battle Creek Kalamazoo area okay. I grew up in Battle Creek. Cool. Serial City. Yeah. I I grew up in Fenton <laughs> outside of Flint. Okay. I used to go to Fenton like all the time because the Church of God campgrounds is in Fenton, Michigan. And I <laughs> used to go to camp in Fenton wow. every single year. That is Do you know random. where the campgrounds are? No. Where are the ca- I didn't even know this in my own town. <laughs> I don't know. Probably somewhere really secluded so we could like snake handle and stuff in peace. But <laughs> Oh my word. Wow. I had no idea. Oh. <laughs> no idea. Yeah. This this Epic. feels like every conversation I've had among Michiganders. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't you know? Uh, oh gosh. <laughs> no, seriously. When I when I went to college, I my roommates, well, actually everyone, thought I was from Canada because my accent was so thick at the time, mm. and like that side of the state, the accent is a bit mm. thicker. Um, but it's yeah. mostly gone. I just have certain words like college that I say really weird. And then my husband makes fun of me, but mostly it's gone. 
I thought you said mostly it's God. <laughs> wow, we're God. jumping in. That God is. just speaking through me. That too. <laughs> or healed you of your Michigan accent. Oh my gosh. No, I'm sad. I'm sad mm. that it's gone. And also, I'm excited because you lived in Tennessee. I did. Lookout Mountain. Mm-hmm. And I graduated from Lee University in Tennessee. Wow. So Lookout Mountain was like, that was our playground. Like mm-hmm. we would drive to Chattanooga, hang out on Lookout Mountain. It's beautiful Did there. you climb? Love it. In college? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I would go, that's where I would climb on Sunset Rock on the point of Lookout a lot. Oh, Such disgust no. from Lens would, at the I thought. I would climb <laughs> in my car and drive up Lookout Mountain. That too. That's and, also pretty. You know. Well, Love this, it. This concludes the uh, the section of getting to know you. <laughs> getting, to know, getting to know all about. Ah, I love um, it. I love it. Yes. Thank you uh, for that, Joy. Um, so mm-hmm. we're going to jump in. KJ, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on, um, one of many, is your experience with chronic illness, the familiar with the Enneagram, and just you seem to exhibit just this this way of going through life that isn't bypassing the suffering Mm -hmm. and is not overcome by it either. Mm. So we wanted to, as, as the season theme being dynamics of personhood, suffering is in all of our lives um, to varying degrees at varying different times of our life and how much suffering and pain shapes us, sensitizes us um, and grows us in ways that on the surface, it may not look like much has changed, but I think it, it deeply, deeply changes us. And mm-hmm. so as, as a very integral part of a person, right, mm-hmm. is, is our pain and our suffering. And so we just feel like you have some really great words to say in this realm. Um, and so I guess the first question is, what has been what has been your experience and what's been your journey when it comes to not necessarily your your chronic illness journey but your relationship to suffering to pain and how that has shaped you yeah it's been a circuitous journey for sure um i think that growing up in the white evangelical church with um, a small business owner dad who's like owned a construction company, worked his ass off all the time. Um, I ingested a lot of messages about my body and my purpose um, that were focused on being productive, having something to contribute and being able to like pull yourself up out of hard circumstances to make your life better. Neither of my parents went to college. Um, My dad barely graduated from high school and they are like a picture of the American dream. And then I went to college (laughs) and was very proud of that. But while I was in college, I got so sick that I couldn't function. And suddenly the dream of productivity and of making your own way and like making a better life than the life that your parents had was not possible for me. It That storyline was bankrupt. And the way that that storyline was woven in to the way that we read scripture suddenly um, crumbled. And so I had to start to reexamine, like, what is the point of being human? 
what does it mean to be a person if it's not to have a purpose, um, if it's not to like be productive and care for others even, or to be used by God, if that's not your purpose as a Christian, what, you, what is your purpose mm. if your whole life is being sick? What's your purpose if a lot of your days are spent in bed, caring for no one but yourself? And that mm-hmm. the questions that my body propelled me into have sh- like curled my life toward communion with God and others and self as the point of it all. And I can't say that's been, you know, that makes it sound like it's been easy, but I'll, I'll stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been going mm-hmm. on for a little bit, but that's, that's been, that's an overview of the journey. Yeah. What's coming to mind for me is not just chronic illness, but even um, something like an eating disorder or something like that, where it feels at some point, I imagine it, it feels selfish to be taking care of yourself constantly and dealing with a sense of shame that that they have to keep taking care of themselves. I, I, I guess speak to that for for a moment if you could. Like how have you been able to manage that? Yeah. Um, I used to rail against the term self-care, which is hilarious um, mm. if you know any of my work now. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I didn't like the focus on self. Um, my religious background is in the like reformed Presbyterian tradition. And so like any focus on self in my religious upbringing was bad. You're supposed to lose yourself, right? What I have, what my body has taught me through her needs, through her consistent and constant needs for care and attunement are that when I give myself kind attention, I actually become more capable of love for everyone. And so I no longer feel shame about my neediness, which is sometimes great. Like my husband really is my caregiver (laughs) and I have seasons. I'm in a really good season right now, but I have seasons where he has to do almost everything. I mean, everything barring wiping my ass. Like (laughs) he Mm. has had to care for me in in such practical ways. And I no longer feel shame about that. I feel sobered. um, And I feel like a, a respect for the way that what I have to live is really just a a slightly more intense than average (laughs) way of, what we all need to encounter, which is that when it's like the whole put on your oxygen mask first situation, like when we're not actually Mm -hmm. attuning to our bodies and our needs, we are not capable of love. We're going to, and from a, a neurological perspective, our nervous system can't be in the state that it needs to be in, in order to love and connect and care when we're in a state of stress. And so my stress is only a signal that I need to come back home to love so that I can love me and others well. So I I view my needs as signals and as um, really like signs of my own worthiness 
because even mm-hmm. my God lived lives in a body with needs. Like Jesus Christ walked this earth needing to sleep and needing to go to the bathroom. He probably got sick sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like He needed people to wait up with him and pray on his worst night, and they didn't. My needs mm-hmm. are actually a nativity where I get to connect more to this embodied God. KJ, I'm curious about when, when along your storyline did these needs become less shameful and more human? Yeah, you know, um, I think my Enneagram story is a little bit woven into that answer in that like mm-hmm. to concurrently my therapist helped me see that I'm highly sensitive. I had always been ashamed of being sensitive my whole life. I was told you're too sensitive. Don't take things so personally. Like basically taught to hide my emotions. And so I did a really good job of that for a long time till my body wouldn't let me anymore. <laughs> um, and so in graduate school for becoming a therapist, when I was in therapy myself, my therapist helped me encounter that my sensitivity, my my deep feelingness isn't actually something to be ashamed of, but something to steward and respect yes. and listen to. And it was around the same time that I started to go through a typing process and first mistyped myself for like over a year as one. And then it was as I got into this, like really listened to my own sense of feeling misunderstood that I came to like through this, this sensitivity and this listening to my own story of, wow, I've always felt this way. I've never felt like people really get where I'm at and what's happening inside me that it was like, I had this new permission to be a person who is empathetic and needs to recharge. And like, I think tied to my sensitivity is my neediness in that like, I am kind of like a, I'm just a, my my husband would say high maintenance. I would say uh, (laughs) fine tuned. I don't like the word machine for humans, but machine like, I Mm. need a lot of just like Mm -hmm. this little plant next to me. Like I need the right amount of light (laughs) and the right amount of Mm. quiet. I need to really care about the level of stimulation in my life so that I can really like stand up tall and show up as me and not wither all the time. Mm. And I think the proof is just in the pudding in that like, as I've learned how to respect those needs over time in the years since those discoveries, I am more and more myself and more and more mm. okay. And even more and more full of joy and able to like give people other people space for joy too. Man, that was beautiful. Um, going back to something you mentioned earlier, you've brought up your husband a couple of times and, and then he's a, a, a caretaker for you in a lot of ways. Well, there's this. There's a quote that has been recently coming to my my brain consistently uh, in some of the circles that I that I run, and it's it's from um, I'm sure you're familiar with the author Sue Monk Kid. Um, she says that there's no pain on earth that doesn't crave a benevolent witness, mm-hmm. and I wonder um, from your experience if you could speak to why in your mind why does pain need 
to be witnessed and what happens when it is. I love that quote so much. So I'm so glad that you brought that up. Um, and that's the center of why I do what I do, both as a therapist and an author, is to be a witness. Mm. I think that pain needs a witness because to be a person is to be witnessed. I, I really draw mm. my understanding of personhood from a more, well, really from the center of the Trinity. So God as Father, Son, and Spirit is relationship in and of God's self. Who I am isn't defined by my individuality, but by my connection to other beings. And so worked right within the heart of the God who I worship is a witnessing of persons, persons witnessing persons mm -hmm. in complete and pure unity and joy and diversity. Pain is only a reflection of that unity that we were made for, that I cannot meet all of my own needs on my own, that I am interdependent. Pain prompts me to be cared for, to be connected. It, it prompts me to get my needs met, which are sometimes met by me, but oftentimes met in relationship. So I think that theologically, who we are, theologically and ontologically, who we are guides us to understand our pain as a prompt. And then physically, the way mm -hmm. that we respond to our pain, when we respond to our pain as a prompt into personhood, into mm -hmm. relationship, it it just works <laughs> in that like, I sit here as a therapist. So one session, let's, let's think of a session this week, helping a client, they're, they're feeling say, um, deep sadness. And so then I'll ask them, okay, so where do you feel that in your body right now? What what's what's the sensation like? Where is the strongest? They'll say right here in the center of my chest. I'd be like, "Well, what color is it?" It's red. If it had a shape, what shape would it be? It would be like this big square. Like really large red square. And so then we sit there, so what if you could just breathe with that? focus on it a little longer. And so we breathe. So what's happening to that pain? It's softening. It's not as intense. Mm -hmm. When we witness our pain, the pain responds in a softening, in a, a gentling. And often it's the presence of another person that can make the pathway between pain and pleasant sensation more possible by virtue of our own witnessing of it to say, you don't have to be afraid of this. Getting a little vulnerable on over here myself, I actually had a an experience with my daughter that um, in the, I would say the correct definition of the term triggered um, this morning, she's eight years old and uh, she wasn't feeling well, and we were trying to get out the door. And there was a lot of accumulation of emotion in the in the home this morning. I've got three others. I've got four mm. kids total. So it's just a lot happening, and uh, and just her refusal to to move. <laughs> it just uh, over and over. It triggered something in me. In that there was some, without getting too deep into my story, there was some pain that I was not witnessed for me growing up. That I was unable to compassionately be with her because 
Yeah, I what I hadn't been given yet, I hadn't, had wasn't able to mm-hmm. give to her. Uh, and so I had to find um, a moment later where I apologized to her, and then actually gave myself some space to witness that pain. And it was, it was a, uh, it was, it was from the past, and it was really scary, and it was, it was a lot of anger mm-hmm. involved. But it, uh, it makes so much sense that uh, our capacity to witness, play a witnessing role for others, is kind of connected to witnessing ourselves is right I think that's what you're saying yeah yes and how much mm-hmm. we have been witnessed yeah and that's what you just said is a great example of why mm. it's not selfish yeah. to meet our needs to have our needs be met because you are now more capable of responding to your daughter with the mm. attunement that she needs because you have attuned to yourself and the places where you were not attuned yeah. to adequately mm-hmm. that is love mm-hmm. I resonate so much with your story, KJ, because I myself am a person with multiple diagnoses. And um, so I've been on this chronic illness journey for about um, about nine years, almost 10 years now. And um, I, I feel myself getting really emotional, especially when you're talking about bearing witness. And in your book, um, you talk about how the empathetic witness can actually be yourself. And I'm remembering Mm -hmm. some therapy that I went through where I was directed to look into a mirror and say the things to myself that I felt like I needed to hear for my own healing. And Mm -hmm. doing a lot of work in the physical space with the medical field and all that, that's, that's a whole component. And I worked with one practitioner who just said to me, I think we've hit a wall because you are scared to look inward and you're scared to go to the places that really hurt. Mm. So I spent all of last year really doing some intentional emotional release work and um, and it made a really huge difference, um, not just in my ability to live my life, but in my ability to, to enjoy my life, to enjoy myself, to not see myself as a problem. Mm-hmm. And so what you're saying about mm-hmm. being high maintenance, I think we, if we're really honest, we are all high maintenance and we just need to accept this about ourselves. <laughs> if yes. we're going to be healthy people, <laughs> if we're going to be vibrant, fully alive people, then yes, let's be high maintenance. Let's care for ourselves well. And especially I think for women, we're so afraid of being perceived as high maintenance because if you're high maintenance, no one's going to want you. And that's the ultimate Mm. goal in life as a woman, right? To be wanted. And so so I think just like (laughs) shedding some of those, some of those fears and labels and getting, getting really honest about, yeah, this is what I need. And and I'm learning to be okay with that and to love myself and be my own empathetic witness. I, um, I love that you were willing to look inward. First of all, that's a really intense word that mm-hmm. your your provider said to you and that you could hear it and actually do something about it is really mm-hmm. remarkable and courageous. We, I was telling all of you before we started recording, we just moved into our first house. And one of the first nights I was laying in bed and thinking about how much I love this house and how amazed I am that we finally get to be in a house after 13 years of being married. And we've moved 15 times. Um, This is our 15th move. Yeah. um, And I was thinking, I want to take such good care of this house. 
And my shoulder was hurting just from like unloading way too much stuff. And I put my hand on my shoulder and I said, and body, Hmm. you are my first house. And I want to always be as amazed by you as I am Hmm. by having this house. And I want to take as good of care of you as I do of this house. I promise to take as good of care as you, body, as I do Mm. of this house. You are just as much of a gift to me Mm. as getting to buy this house is. Mm. And I say that because I think you're right. We are all high maintenance. (laughs) We... We, just like a house has to be maintained, but there's things I'm going to have to do to take care of our house and keep it in good repair. There's things that each of us, our personhood, our physicality, our emotionality that we all need to be well. And if we could see our bodies as our homes rather than the place where we're held hostage, I think we could take that turn like you did to listen. Recently, I wrote a piece where I was playing with the idea of how pain is like a knocking at the door, like our our younger self is knocking at the door, trying to get our attention. In therapy, I work a lot with internal family systems and, um, and different somatic modalities. And I really believe that often pain is the younger self who didn't get adequately witnessed, like you were talking about, Seth, knocking and saying, I'm still here, like, I still need to be held. And what I've realized over the years and listening to myself, like, I think you just articulated, is when I learned to actually answer the door and not keep pain outside of my house, but, like, sit down with the pain in the house of my own being, in my soul, pain, this this younger self who's still hurting so much, um, doesn't have to knock so hard. Or so often, like I end up not being in as much pain physically when I am not afraid of my pain or trying so hard to remove it from my life or like sweep it out of the doorways of my house. When I treat Mm -hmm. my pain like dirt, the pain just comes back inside. (laughs) When I treat my pain like a friend, like a, a part of myself who deserves to be held and mothered, the pain softens and is no longer mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. as terrible. And even, you know, like I have, I will continue to have these diseases until the day that I die. But my experience of them is entirely different than when I first got sick 14 years ago. And I hear you saying the same thing. It feels like a shift that you're describing from pain as an interruption, right? Which, which actually interruption feels... <laughs> like I'm diminishing and I, I, I don't mean to do that, but, but, um, <laughs> as an interruption no. rather, uh, as opposed to an in- invitation, right? Like even your own, uh, story mm-hmm. of touching your shoulder and saying that to yourself, um, it wasn't so much an interruption from kind of moving into your new house, but rather an invitation to something much deeper, more profound, right? Yeah. I'd love to have a, a conversation at least for a few minutes about, the importance of language, KJ, you know, because I think you clearly, and I'll, you're a therapist, so you use language. <laughs> you, you're a writer. Um, you're also prolific on Instagram <laughs> as it relates to how you are able to um, create content that is, uh, I think, meaningful 
and intentional with the language that you use in a sea of kind of listicles mm -hmm. and, you know, clickbait, right? So maybe mm -hmm. my first question would be, help me understand how you've grown and developed in um, kind of your use of and appreciation for language as it relates to your story and helping others. Oof. Love that. I'm a words lover and nerd, so yeah. this makes my heart happy. You know, it, I would say one of the places where a place that put me on a trajectory to the power of poetics was being a student of theology in college at my small little Christian college. And that was where I first encountered what we were talking about earlier with Trinitarian theology and like also liberation theology, but especially this like relational ontology, thinking about what is personhood and and if if this is if, if I think God is our source, then what does that mean for how I describe who I am and who you are? Um, and that was the first place I started to really play with reframing and redefining what it means to be a person, and that just kind of never stopped. Um, I've really, you know, especially in recent years, I, I think this was happening before we left the spiritually abusive church we were at and have been on this healing path with religious trauma. But I really had to re-examine the language that I used and that I just um, internalized from church and society around me about what does it mean to be human and so much of that language is steeped in the vernacular of capitalism. And I'm not going to go on some rant, which I could, yeah. about the ills of capitalism. But, like, sure. we are more than what we do. Yeah. We're more than what we do. And I think that disabled voices often are leading the way in expanding our imagination yeah. of what it means to be human. Because... I cannot always do everything, but I am still wholly yeah. loved and wholly valuable. And it is my, it is the the soil of my suffering and my life that makes that garden of goodness of like, I am so much more than my job. Yeah. It makes that possible. So the soil in my life really shifts how I how I talk about things and how I see myself and that like as I shed language that limits that puts me into a box in which I cannot flourish yeah. and others cannot flourish either I find more space like a spaciousness um also just really love to play I I and I am addicted <laughs> to alliteration yeah, as you can already that's tell That's great. Yeah, thank <laughs> so but it's it's important it's important that we shed storylines and the scripts that go with them and the, the, the assumed okay adjectives and nouns so that we can actually be like experience that we're really beloved no matter what happens in our lives. Language has the power to propel us into a future where you're loved no matter what. It also has the power to mm, sure. um, limit you. 
and limit your imagination of what your life can be. You know, that's, I have noticed that exact thing in dealing with chronic illness when it comes to the language used in the medical community. There is such a way that when we're spoken to by our doctors or by the people that are supposed to help us, I don't think they realize how violent that language can be sometimes when they say things to us like, your body is attacking itself. How are we supposed to have healthy relationships with our body when we're being sent messages like that? And we we are kind of inundated with it, really. We've got diet culture. We've got purity culture. We've got grind culture. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we have all these spaces where it's just like yeah. your body is pitted against you. And um, I would love if you would talk mm-hmm. more about how we can make that shift to using language as a way, like you said, to propel us, or I might add the word uh, to sort of redeem some of our ideas about our own bodies. So it for me, it starts with that whole idea of personhood as being in relationship. We are actually in relationship with our bodies. So talk to your body as a person, not an it and talk about your body as a person, not in it. Like that is one small shift that has stunning and massive consequences for good. Um, I talk about my body as she and her. And I talk about it, my experience. You'll often hear me talking like if I'm explaining something to my husband of my day, my experience that day, um, or like, narrating my conversation with my body, I'll say we, as though there's like two of us and there's not two of us, but I'm always having this conversation of we're feeling like this. And, and that's almost like my embodied, we talk, this is phrase phrasing I use in therapy, my embodied wise self, my truest self. She, when, when I'm able to be centered in who she is, she leads the rest of me. And she is always in conversation in kind and gentle conversation with the rest of the parts of me, including, which often are speaking up through sensation in my body. And learning to like practice relating to ourselves as people, as and, and to sensation, as mm-hmm. um, sacred speech, from a person who deserves to be heard changes how you hear and what you hear in the form of pain um, and discomfort. So talk to your body as she, her, him, they, like whatever pronoun you you feel comfortable using, um, listen and say, like, okay, one example of how to do this, um, feel a little bit of pain, in my lower back right now. Oh, it seems like you're really hurting. We're hurting. Okay. And I just took a deep breath. I'm just like sending breath to that area. It's simple, but it it really matters how we talk to ourselves as whole people. I mean, this is getting back to like Martin Buber, I, thou language rather than I, it. You are, your body is not an it. Your body is a thou <laughs> who deserves to be um, hmm. encountered with reverence. And then 
when you do that, you can't help but encounter every mm-hmm. other body and person with reverence to you, which changes yes, fucking everything. <laughs> mm. So along these, these same lines of how important the language we use and we quickly adopt language, language without actually thinking about the implications of it. We just assume everyone agrees on that same term and what we mean is what they mean. And so I, I want to start with, it's kind of a two-parter, but I want to start with the side of pain, suffering, discomfort, those sort of things. Um, can you give examples to listeners, whether it's chronic illness or, or any other discomfort, whether it be emotional or physical um, or mental, right? And and what? how can we better approach um, this language with that respect and reverence that you're talking about. Okay, who's up for an experiment? <laughs> yes. Out of all of you right <laughs> Lindsay. now. <laughs> Lindsay. <laughs> Got it. Okay. All right, Lindsay. Let's just let's make this Ooh, real I love right it. now. Check in. <laughs> so okay, first I just want you to take two deep long breaths. Should just <sighs> let yourself slow down. And then I just want you to pay attention, to check in with your body. You know, and other times we might like work from the top of your head down to the bottom of your feet, but just check in. What's the strongest sensation in your body right now? Tightness in my chest and my shoulders. Tightness in chest and shoulders. And then like out of chest and shoulders, which one is more intense? Shoulders. Shoulders. Okay. So let yourself focus in on that. Maybe give it some breath. It's hard to focus on tension. And then what color would it be? Hmm. If you could, if you could like paint the sensation. Purple. Like a deep purple like what like shade of bruise, purple like a dark purple mm, mm-hmm. bruise and if you were to have clay to mold it into a shape what shape would you give it a heart <laughs> heart and so is there if is there part of your shoulders that you could put a hand on comfortably yeah Let's just put a hand there And I wonder if you could ask yourself through your shoulders, what are you trying to tell me? What do you need me to know today? And just see like anything random that comes up. What's coming through your mind? I have something, but it's too personal to share here. (laughs) That's okay. Yeah, that's okay. But just give your body some acknowledgement i i hear you i hear you tell your body you hear her yeah and then just give her some breath to give her space and check back in with the sensation of the tightness in your shoulders how does it feel i just feel a general warmth i would say Mm. just a general calm and warmth Warmth, yeah. So softened. 
So that's mm-hmm. that's an example. Thank you Thank for you doing for that, by the way. I know that. that's um, a little bit of a risk, but that's an example. Like you don't have to have a therapist to do that with you, but having a conversation with your body, like mm-hmm. actually taking the time to pause, just like you would if um, if your kid is coming up to you and like tugging at your arm, <laughs> say like, I need you, I need you, mom or dad, or like mm-hmm. it's, pausing and actually listening and then saying like, what do you need me to know today? Usually there's something that our bodies are trying to tell us. And sometimes the things that come through our minds are going to feel really random. It might be like a, an image of the past memory or some sort of strange, like it seems like a free association thing. And there's usually something there that needed to be witnessed it's, it's an opportunity to be witnessed. And usually the sensation is connected to the story that you've lived that still can be shifted and transformed through mm-hmm. kind attention. And that's what you just did. So it's just a willingness to pause, just like you would pause to listen to another human being. Do that with your own body. Mm-hmm. I think, too, what's coming up for me there when you mentioned kids, one thing I ask my kids a lot is, what have I misunderstood? What is it you need me to understand Mm. more clearly that I'm not seeing? And I think that that is a question I'd love to incorporate for myself because it gives me an opportunity to to write a different story Mm -hmm. around my pain and my suffering. Yes. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yes. And it's so, it's courageous to do this in multiple respects. So much of the storyline that we've, been given that we've swallowed says that pain is a problem to fix. And I think Mm. pain is a prompt into Mm. full personhood, into wholeness. Pain isn't only something to fix. Pain is something to respond to because there's always a person there waiting to be whole. Like it's There's always a story that we've misunderstood or something that we've shoved down. And every time that I feel pain, I'm being given an opportunity to repair and to heal. And that's why I I don't actually resent the amount of pain that I live with. Um, I find, this is going to sound crazy, like I feel privileged that I get to listen to my body this much. I feel privileged that I, I get to be in constant conversation with my humanity. And that includes not just pain, but like positive sensation too. By not blocking the pain out of my life, I'm also not blocking mm-hmm. the joy out of my life and mm-hmm. the deep happiness. And I can be fluent in the language of both grief and goodness. And um, I'm, all, I, I'm always getting... I'm never alone in so many regards. I'm never alone because the spirit of God dwells in me. I'm also never alone because I'm <laughs> my own best friend. Yes. <laughs> like, and I have a best friend too. But like, I I am always in conversation with this love that dwells inside me, and that means my days are full of companionship and connection, um, even when mm-hmm. the days are full of pain. The last kind of area that we'd love to explore with you is language again around the the more positive side i guess you could say it right where it's 
the hope, the courage, the healing. And I think oftentimes we get those, those words can be used to bypass or, or even we think those words mean we have this incredible sensation, this like we have Hans Zimmer writing a score behind us, kind of courageous. And <laughs> what you just demonstrated with the exercise with mm-hmm. Lindsay, is it's, it's quite mundane. It's quite mm-hmm. small, insignificant, mm-hmm. but actually very precious and dear. And, and so how, how have you worked through with yourself and maybe with your clients as well of uh, how do we hold these words like hope, courage, healing, that sort of thing um, in, a, in a more healthier way? The place that my mind first goes is that we have mm-hmm. to hold them together. There were a lot of years in the beginning of my illness that I did not feel hope for myself. And I didn't feel, I I lost hope that I would actually get a Mm -hmm. diagnosis. Took four years to get my first diagnosis, um, which is a long time when you're miserable every day. (laughs) Um, Mm. And I'm sure that there are a lot of people listening who have had that experience, because especially females, um, it, well, I could go on a rant. I'm not going to go on a rant. Mm. Pain is not respected or believed in women Mm -hmm. um, so much of the time. (sighs) All that to say, um, I had to learn, I got to learn to let other people have faith on my behalf and hope on my behalf and to, to actually live out what I was already believing about everything I said earlier about personhood to live that out that like I can be at the place where I think God is an asshole for letting this happen to my to me and let you hold that God is good mm-hmm. <laughs> like a friend let a friend hold that God is good and that God cares for me they can hold that when that's too heavy for me and they're holding it actually changes how I experience being held. And by me relinquishing my need to hold up my own faith and my own hope, somehow mysteriously, I get to relax into the arms that are underneath Mm -hmm. me at all times. There's a great paradox there. But I think this is part of why pain is such a is so full of possibility in that it brings us to the edge of our limits of um, what humanness is supposed to be that like I am not actually supposed to be able to meet all my own needs. I am not actually supposed to be able to have faith completely on my own. I was made to be in relationship. I was made to be connected. And when I reach the end of my belief, I am only at the beginning of my belonging. Hmm. Letting ourselves break, letting ourselves actually um, come to those edges where we feel hopeless and, and become hospitable towards one another's hopelessness changes the way that we come to experience hope again. So I don't think, I, I think the point of all of like the words like hope, courage, faith, <laughs> we can relate to them in a healthier way 
by remembering that we can only hold them together. Mm. We can only hold them in tandem mm. with others. Which again, that all sounds really beautiful, but that's also a super painful reality when others are the source of mm. yeah. your pain. Both with thinking of complex trauma, religious trauma, the trauma of medical experiences where so many doctors gaslight us. Mm. I mean, literally just heard another story of that t of yesterday from my own sister of being gaslit. And it's like, these are the people who are meant to be sources of hope for us who have, who um, represent having answers and help. And when they're the ones that um, almost like put up, you know, like the emoji that's got like <laughs> the mm -hmm. cross, cross arms, like other people will cross their arms and like block off our need for help or a need for kindness, that is a deep, deeply wounding yeah. experience. And there are people who will listen and will respond, who will honor our hopelessness, who will honor the hard place that we're in. And that changes the way that we're able to exist. Mm -hmm. Like it makes, it gives space mm -hmm. to be witnessed. KJ, one of the, so our, our main theme for this season in Fathoms is the dynamics of personhood, which I think we've we've mentioned to you. And it's it's kind of moving mm -hmm. from those three things are individuality in, and then into mutuality. And I hear you kind of talking about how um, healthy individuality is one in which our hearts are open to be affected by the suffering, which actually when that happens, we are moved into mutuality. Uh, and so there mm -hmm. is, um, what I hear you saying is that there that ho real hope is actually a communal effort, um, a little mm -hmm. bit more yeah. more than an yes. individual one. Yes, I say um, hope is a team sport. <laughs> mm. Like there's mm. no way around it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it really, really is. And I think that um, I feel tenderness in my heart when we talk about this because I know so many of my readers and so many people who have seen me in therapy feel. I would say despondent um, about this very thing in that like you're saying hope is a team sport. I need to play on the team, but like I don't have anyone left mm -hmm. and it's people who have hurt me. How do you mm -hmm. even have those people? And I know people hate this answer coming from a therapist, but I think that when we've um, become demoralized by being on a bad team, a team that thinks hope is supposed to, like you're supposed to be the shining forward who can score all the mm -hmm. goals um, and just keep running and running and running or something. Um, when you're on a team like that, you, or you're like, you feel like you just have to sit on the bench constantly. It's very scary and almost um, infuriating to be told that you need to, that hope is a team sport. So I think it's important to honor that, like the pain of the way relationships have reinforced the story that we're supposed to be able to do everything on our own. And to say, this can change. Like one of the, that's one of the purposes of therapy. This week, one of my clients said something that made me for real cry <laughs> in session. This client said, I've realized we we had a couple weeks off because I was moving. 
and then we came back together, I realized in our time in our time off that the point of therapy isn't really for me to relate to you or me to relate differently for you to know me, even for me to know you. The point of therapy is that you're introducing me to my core self. Mm. And I'm getting to know her in in a way that I used to be afraid to know. I think therapy gives us a, a safe enough context where we get to learn what it's like to be on a team mm. that's safe, a team that has your good in mind and a team where you always have a spot and every part of you has a mm-hmm. spot on the team. Therapy can give us that safe enough space where we can dare to try again when we know that relationships mm-hmm. might hurt us, but mm-hmm. they also can heal us. And so while it's cheesy to hear a therapist mm-hmm. say that, I'm just going to throw that out there because I think that we need safe enough spaces to learn how to do this again mm-hmm. because there are sadly too few of spaces where there's people who are willing to give that. I think there are people out there. I just think sometimes it takes some real care and practice to get to that place where we can risk loving like mm-hmm. this again. I, I hear some people out there that may not have any experience with chronic illness or whatever. And she's like, what, what is, what is emotions and, and being and loving yourself? What does that have to do with anything? when it comes to a physical body that is that is having a difficult time operating and i i was talking to a friend she's she's a brilliant um she has a podcast think fit be fit and i was just like how do you she, she works with chronic ill people um through like physical modalities and she said um the way i often describe it is um, people with chronic illness, it's like their glass is completely full. Like there's there's stress levels, all the things are completely full. And when you aren't actually managing and dealing with your emotions, it's just, it's making the cup overflow. And it's not that if you deal with your emotions, all will be well. Like that's, don't insult me. Like that is, that's just not... Um, our bodies, we are complex humans and anyone who tries to reduce it to just take this medicine or just deal with your emotions, that that's offending. The point I'm getting to is as a, as a final word, not just to those who are chronically ill, but those who may be in relationship to or taken care of, how do you suggest going about, what's that first step? What's the first step um, of those that are just kind of ridden with shame and guilt or or just terrified of, I don't know what's next. I don't know how to quote unquote heal myself, or I don't know how to take care of this person. I can't control mm-hmm. anything. Um, what's, what's that first step that they can do with themselves and with others? Hmm. That's a great question. The nerd in me has to mm-hmm. make one connection first before fully answering. Just, um, so these most recent two books, I connect Uh, really reflect on Psalm 23 and use that as my launching pad. And part of Psalm 23 is my cup overflows. And there's a Jewish tradition with Sabbath, with Shabbat, of filling the cup to the brim so that when each person, when it's passed around, it sloshes over the edge. And the thought here is that with my cup overflows in Psalm 23, that what's inside your cup is what's going mm-hmm. to come over the edge. That like we we need to 
be filled again and again with kindness so that kindness is what overflows Mm. the edges of our cup. And that when you're bumped by a stress, when you're bumped by another terrible circumstance, what comes out of you is not contempt, but compassion and love. Mm. Um, And I've just, I love that imagery so much. I think we have to be willing to drink the cup that has Mm. been given to us. And if the cup in your life includes a lot of physical pain, not swallowing it and digesting it is going to um, make you stew <laughs> and and make a mess, frankly, too. Think about a really full cup of wine, a really full glass of wine. Like if that was full and you're walking around your house, it's you're going to get red drops all over the place. I spilled some wine on one of our first nights here and it did take some effort to get that up. I'm just saying, take some effort. So like, mm. what if you drink the cup, okay? Mm. This is a metaphor, but I think it is powerful to think about that even Jesus decided to drink his cup. Like, and even Jesus first cried out to have it taken away from him. So there's room in the reality of being even a a person of faith, if that's what you consider yourself, to simultaneously cry out to have your cup taken from you that like, this is too full, this is too much, this is too bitter, I don't want it. And to have the choice to reclaim your choice that this is the only fucking cup I have, so I am going to drink it to its dregs. <laughs> mm. And like somehow in the drinking, I am changed. Um, it's when I spit out what's in my cup or when I try to shove it away that I am not nourished and I make a mess. Um, so to say, what do we do? What's the first step? I think the first step is holding the cup. It's being willing to actually see this is what's here. Um, practically, that can look like pausing. Like instead of me pretending like I'm not in pain um, because I'd rather not be to, to like physically pause. Usually that will involve taking a deep breath or two or more. <laughs> Take a deep breath with my pain there. Like say I'm feeling pain when friends are over at our house and we're like supposed to be hosting dinner and I wish I could be more on than I am. Mm. I'm going to remember the cup that's here and I'm going to honor it Mm. and I'm going to sip by taking a breath. That changes how I carry it with me and it changes the, the place that I take at that table. Um, in terms of other people, like being being mindful of the cup too, that like looks like your cup is really full right now. So we pause together. I think pausing carries so much power, just acknowledgement of you're in a lot of pain. That's okay. I'm sorry. Mm. Simple empathy goes so, so, so far. And um, I think that our breath can be a really beautiful and potent balm to like 
giving just a tiny bit of space um, to to drink without mm-hmm. spilling all over ourselves. Breath is like a way that we can um, calm the nervous system. We can say to the rest of us, we're more okay than it feels like. Pain often is going to be coming up in a stress state, which is your body saying, we're not safe enough. We're not safe enough. And a lot of times, like, we're misperceiving that, like, we are more safe than we feel like we are. Breath is one way we can send more like um, signals from the body back up to the brain to say, we're okay. We're really okay. And as we talked about earlier, the pain then softens. It doesn't always go fully away, but it softens. And you, and by soften, I mean, you don't spill all over the place. And any person in pain will know what I mean when I say, that means you're not going to be a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, (laughs) practically, if I take the time to breathe and like, send my body some signals that I'm okay. Breath is just one way. Havening is another. Tapping, heart hug, Mm -hmm. all these small ways to just send signals up ground, like orienting, looking around your room, just noticing like white books, green, green shade. Um, I'm going to show you this, but I'm not going to say it. (laughs) I don't know if you can read that. It's a picture. Um, A reader made that for me. Butterflies, like actually looking around, giving myself these visual cues of being where I am rather than trying to escape where I am tells my body I'm safe enough to be here right Mm. now. And that that changes how I can show up instead of having to, I'm going to be irritable and not focused if I don't take the time to tell my body we're safe to be here right now. Mm -hmm. KJ. Uh, thank you. I feel like we have a lot more to say, <laughs> and there's we'll have to we'll have to do this again. That would be great. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of uh, topics and questions that we had hoped to get to, we didn't even get to because this was so rich and wonderful and <laughs> profound. Um, so uh, thank you for joining us and um, showing up fully mm. as your full self with your body. Thank you for that. Thank you. It's been yeah. a joy. Truly. Well, thanks. Um, you know, we got to do the obligatory. Where can people find you? You know, if they want to keep up with your work and read the things that you've talked about here, yeah. yeah where, where would you point them towards? Yeah. Um, okay. So you can find me at KJ Ramsey Writes, writes as in mm-hmm. writing, writing books. KJ Ramsey Writes all over social media. I'm especially on Instagram um, and kjramsey.com. Yeah, and the latest book is called The Book of Common Courage. And it's meant to be just a small companion for the moments that are hard when you don't really want to drink mm. your cup. Yeah. Yeah. It can companion you, hopefully, to give you a little bit of what we talked about earlier of that, hey, you don't have to hold this on your own, but this can hold space for courage yeah. for you. And as we close this episode, we asked KJ to read a portion from her book. We hope you enjoy. This is from the Book of Common Courage. I started blessing what I had been avoiding. Saint in my skin. Saint in my sin. Saint in my struggle. 
I started seeing the swelling of my skin as the story of my resilience. I started holding the pills in my hand as prayers of perseverance. I started naming my imperfect reflection in the mirror as ineffaceable in glory and goodness. This tender flesh is chosen and always loved, a walking miracle of grace and grit. All its swelling and shrinking is but stretching to hold the mystery of being embraced by Jesus and renamed as beloved by the Father. Stop turning away from what God is always turned toward. See your skin and say your name. Saint, Saint, Saint. Saint.